instead of necessarily just focusing on illness, which is just one component of our life, we really decided to focus on a marriage and a relationship and the things that we both bring to the table. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When Alex Belth went on a first date with Emily Shapiro, he was smitten. He had finally met the woman of his dreams, and he imagined a life together filled with romance and kids. The two were married five years later. Two decades since that first date, Alex and Emily remain deeply in love. But their life has been very different from what they first imagined. Emily has struggled with chronic illness, and Alex has been her caregiver. At the age of 22, Emily developed Crohn's disease, an incurable autoimmune condition that affects the digestive system. Shortly after they married, Emily was diagnosed with chronic migraines and a spatial management disorder in which her eyes don't work with each other. The issue of caring for loved ones with chronic illness has taken on new urgency during the COVID pandemic. Of some 80 million Americans and over 111,000 Vermonters who contracted COVID-19, estimates are that 10 to 30 percent of them will experience long-term chronic symptoms known as long COVID. Vermont Health Commissioner Mark Levine said on the Vermont Conversation in December 2021 that he predicts, quote, a pandemic of long COVID. For Alex and Emily, instead of enduring their health challenges in silence, They've chosen to live their lives out loud, literally. Alex, who is an editor at Esquire magazine, and Emily, a former emergency room nurse who is now has a practice in healing and energy work, have released a new Audible original audiobook, Here I Are, Anatomy of a Marriage. They recorded the book in their home in Bristol, Vermont. Their book consists of candid conversations about love, sex, romance, and life with chronic illness. I began by asking Alex why they decided to invite others into their marriage to hear about how they deal with intimate health challenges. Well, I think part of the part of what is always compelling about being a storyteller is that you want to write about things that are meaningful, um, but also things that we often don't talk about. And uh, the impetus for doing this audio book came a few years ago when I wrote an article for Men's Health Magazine about uh, being married to Emily, but also how we've handled uh, dealing with chronic illness because Emily has had chronic illness for over 25 years. And um, that was sort of the springboard for Audible to approach me about maybe doing something in the audio space of a similar story. And uh, I've always, for the amount of time that I've been together with Emily, found her so impressive. Um, so formidable as a person and had so much to say and uh, her voice, the quality of her voice even, you know, and I thought, well, this, how about this for an opportunity, you know? And so Audible had approached me about doing something. And then I, Emily and I actually made about a half an hour demo and we sent it to Audible because I said, you know, you should hear, you should hear, you should hear her. And after they heard that, they said, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And so we conceived the two of us, as well as with Audible, the idea of doing a C, a, a, a C, sorry, a she said, he said, kind of back and forth narrative. And <clears throat> instead of necessarily just focusing on illness, 
it, which is just one component of our life, we really decided to focus on a marriage and a relationship and the things that we both bring to the table, um, me included. And uh, I, th I thought that was a really pivotal um, decision for us to make in the conception of this, to not make it just an illness story, but to make it a story about relationships. And did you actually sit side by side when you recorded this or did you do it separately? We did it separately. We were um, what if one was being recorded, the other one of us left the house. We didn't want to know what we talked about or what was asked by the person interviewing us. We didn't want to influence each other. And we actually recorded this in our house here in Vermont. Um, we had, <clears throat> our editor was working remotely, and but we recorded our sessions here. And uh, we felt very strongly about sort of each of us being able to bring our own side of the story um, to the experience. And just uh, to backtrack a little bit, we had written a complete narrative outline of what we wanted this story to be before we started recording. And initially I was going to write a section for myself, my portion, and then read it. Emily was going to be interviewed by our editor with the questions removed and we would go back and forth that way. But really before we started to produce it, we thought for continuity of, uh, of our performance, it would be better if we were both interviewed. So essentially we were tasked with creating a structure for this thing and then stepping back and trying to forget everything that we just created and come to it fresh as interviewees, which is what we did. Um, we each had four recording sessions and then we had a final session where we, were, we, we, we recorded together. Uh, and then once we heard a rough cut from um, our editor at Audible, we then worked alongside with her as proper editors and story t makers in terms of uh, crafting the piece to exactly how we wanted it to be. Emily, let me, uh, you know, you spent so much of your youth as any young person would trying to hide anything that was less than perfect about yourself. And as you began to grapple with the seriousness of your condition, um, you know, some of your biggest fears were a new boyfriend finding out, uh, you know, that you had an ostomy bag or which seems perfectly normal that you would have those concerns. So here you are just putting it all out in the open. Was was part of that painful for you? Did you have to sort of undo or unlearn a lot of instincts that you had around privacy? Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes, definitely. Um, it, it is really hard to talk about this stuff. And I saw this project as an opportunity to have like my own form of coming out with sharing what my life is really like instead of hiding. Um, I think that trying to be perfect and trying to hide everything also lands you in a space of being a total island and isolated, not connecting with other people that are having similar experiences. So that was very difficult as well. And I felt it's, it's very meaningful to me to know that when I'm sharing something, there may be someone else walking the planet with the same issues. And they can say, they can just point and say, okay, someone else has this too. 
and I can feel a little bit better about myself that um, I'm not the only one uh, and sharing in that regard. Um, I also, you know, during the day, I saw it as just this great opportunity. And if we're going to do this, let's do this. We got to let it all hang out or else why do it? Um, and then at night <laughs> when I would wake up two, three, four o'clock in the morning, you know, my eyes would go, what, what am I doing? What am I saying? What have I done? <laughs> that kind of thing. So it, it went back and forth, but, um, I feel really positive about it and getting feedback that, um, is very warm, um, is very impactful for me. Emily, take us back to you in your early 20s when before you were diagnosed with any conditions and how you came to learn that not only that you were not well, well, you certainly didn't need anyone to tell you when you're in pain, but then as you gradually came to learn what your condition is. It was at first very mysterious because I had never been a sick kid or had issues around, you know, digestive problems or any restrictions of what I could eat, what I could do physically, everything um, was open. Um, and all of a sudden I just was really not feeling well and what's going on. And the doctor also couldn't figure it out, which was, um, concerning uh, because the symptoms were escalating and quite rapidly. Um, it was frightening. It was frightening to go from completely healthy, not needing to think about my health at all. It was more, what do I want to do today? Or what do I have to do today? As opposed to what can I do today? Um, and, and what are the symptoms of what came to be diagnosed as Crohn's disease? Mm -hmm. So what was happening was um, I was having a lot of pain after eating and after removing, you know, things like say broccoli or cauliflower that could hurt anyone's stomach, you know, even down to a liquid diet, I was having a lot of trouble digesting um, and everything was just running through me. And um, what was happening that it was, the Crohn's is an autoimmune disease, which means that the body is attacking itself without any external influence. And what that looks like is um, like, say for example, your system recognizes that there's a foreign body in your digestive system and a switch will be turned on with your immunity to go and take care of whatever that is. And once that foreign invader is gone, the switch can get turned off and everything is fine. But what was happening was that the switch was being turned on without any foreign anything that shouldn't be there. It was just me. And so what the uh, what my immune system was doing was eating away at healthy tissue because there wasn't a foreign invader and that um, results in ulcerating as the lining of the intestine is attacked uh, passing blood clots severe pain um, a lot of weight loss and um, it was really frightening really mm. frightening so when you met Alex, 
at what point uh and and i should ask i uh, should have asked this sooner uh, how old are both of you i'm 49. oh you mean, oh now yeah i'm 50. okay uh, at what age started, did you meet yeah we we got together i was 29 and, and you know we we're in our late 20s yeah mm -hmm. so um emily you meet uh this new love interest um at what point did you kind of tell him about you know you then went through surgeries i mean i can you can give sort of the synopsis of your medical adventures in your 20s mm -hmm. um well what was great was that he actually was aware of it um, we have a mutual friend that we met through and my friend liz our our friend liz would report to alex every once in a while you know what was doing with me if I was back in the hospital or something of that nature. So he had tangential information. Um, so it wasn't completely shocking to him. Um, and I, I took it real slow with sharing about what was happening for me and what had happened. Um, when we met, I was doing a lot better. I had had many years behind me at this point post-surgery and um, that initial onset of the Crohn's. So I, it was like a trickle, you know, I would share a little of this and then wait a bit, you know, until the next installment, so to speak. Um, I didn't want to scare Alex. And I also really wanted to make light of it, which was actually how I was navigating my life anyway. Um, with a certain level of denial, like everything is fine unless otherwise notified kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I I like to present myself as completely normal and totally healthy. <laughs> and when I do any reporting, I do it um, clinically. And okay, so that's that now past the salt, you know, um, <laughs> no big thing. So Alex, what were you hearing as this essentially were you were kind of peeling the onion of the story of Emily's, you know, the full picture of her health? Uh, you must have been finding out strain, you know, there were restaurants you couldn't go to, foods you couldn't eat. Um, the simple act of going out for coffee or a drink was probably not so simple. What uh, What were you starting to think as you were falling in love with Emily? You know, it's hard to sometimes put yourself entirely back in that moment, but I think I was feeling a lot of things, you know, on one hand, so drawn to Emily, so attracted to her because she was so down to earth and I could be so comfortable around her. You know, one thing is that we started dating in our late 20s, but we had actually gone to the same high school together. And while we didn't know each other, we certainly knew of each other. So there was a sort of shorthand that we had not just generationally, but I mean, we knew who the same math teacher was, say, for instance, you know, even though we didn't have any practical experiences. But then as we started dating, you know, Emily, I, I was aware that Emily was sort of being cautious about what she was telling me. And, you know, that was probably really wise on her end because it was overwhelming. Sometimes I felt as if I was like, um, you know, a little kid who tries to be brave and, and jumps into the deep end of the pool and be like, yeah, I can do this, you know, and then I'm in the deep end of the pool and I'm like, whoa, you know, I got to, you know, this is, I got to deal with this. So, you know, again, even boiler small things like uh, where can we go to eat food, you know, those things were 
a real humbling adjustment, you know, also for me just to sort of put a break on my own self-absorption, you know, at that point in my life at 29 or 30, I was very caught up in whatever I was caught up in, you know, Oh, Emily, I got to take you to this restaurant, you know, and she might be like, I don't know if that's going to be, there's a lot for me there, but you have to go because this is the, you know, I, there was a real disconnect for me as if I wasn't seeing what the reality was. He said, no, no, I'm not trying to deny you or not that I'm not interested. I, I can't digest this food. And so to try to, okay, fine. Where do you want to go? You know? And so to, to learn how to be diplomatic to learn how to also just get over your own, my own self and, and to work on that empathy, the quality of empathy, you know, beyond my own experience. That was, that was a, a lot, you know, uh, early on in our relationship to try to, to try to, it was a, it was a big challenge. So one of the challenges that you faced early on, you, uh, and this is an interesting chronology, you first move in together and then have the conversation about whether you want to have kids. Um, how did, and you'd been dating for five years, I think. Uh, how did you manage to avoid that little detail that long-term couples would normally kind of figure out earlier on? Well, just to correct the timeline, it wasn't actually five years. It was, it, it was like a year and a half, but nevertheless, as Emily described before, you know, denial is a pretty powerful thing. You know, you can get yourself to where you got to go. And there must have been something subconscious in for both of us because we were very fastidious. We were very thorough <laughs> in, in how we were proceeding. And believe, believe me, like when we finally had that conversation, we had already decided to move in together. And we were both somewhat flabbergasted that we could have missed it. <laughs> you know, how did we miss how did we miss this? But at the same time, I think it was divine intervention because I could easily see us parting ways had we not moved in together and been that invested once it did come up. I, I don't know that we would have um, we would have stayed together. So it was too much of a deal breaker. I mean, there's so many things in relationships that are gray. You know, the whole life is gray. It's not black and white. Kids or no kids is a potentially black and white situation without <laughs> yes. without it being anyone at fault, you know, without anyone, you you know, there would be no knock on me if I said, you know, I really, I, it's so important for me to have children and a family in my life. And that is, you know, but by the time Emily and I had been together for a while, I thought what I have with Emily, I, I don't know that I can get that with somebody else. I mean, I could, but that would be the risk, right? Uh, so those were some of the things that we had. I had to put into consideration when when faced with that big quandary. But you you are correct with the five year thing because though we moved in it together at a year and a half, we took five years to work this out before right. getting married. That's right. Um, well, so Alex, you wanted kids. Emily, you did not want kids. And Emily, you have a, a great quote in the in the book where you say you, you realized it wasn't a compromise to have half a child. Um, <laughs> so why wasn't that a deal breaker for the two of you? And also your unfolding challenges that you would have to uh, deal with as a couple, the health challenges, what made both of you given, you know, some of these real differences when it comes to kids challenges, when it comes to health, um, 
why did you keep moving forward? Why didn't one of you take an off an off ramp? I'll let. Uh, why don't we have Alex start that? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it, it's uh, you know, I, I I had a fantasy of wanting my life to look a certain way. I thought, and I thought that was I want to fall in love and I want to be in love. And what does that mean? Committed relationship. That's going to mean children. You know, I hadn't even really thought much about beyond that. I just always had assumed that that was the case. So then I find somebody that I love, but it's not going to be the way that necessarily I, I had fantasized about it. And but what were the qualities that I had with Emily? Qualities of that you want in a partner. And it's not to say that you can't fall in love with other people, but Emily really respected me really a lot. And she treated me really well. And she supported what I wanted to do. And P.S., we don't have hardly anything in common other than our values. <laughs> Interests, I mean, we could not be any different. So it wasn't like we could bond on our mutual love of Buster Keaton movies or whatever the heck it is, you know? So that was really, that was a really strong thing for me. And, you know, without giving away too much of the story. It's just to say that part of the risk was I'm going to take this leap and I don't know whether it's going to work out. This is, you know, I don't know if it's going to work out. And I had anticipated perhaps having a lot of regret if uh, things didn't turn out the way that I had env envisioned it. And I don't, David, I don't know when this happened. It wasn't an aha moment, seven, eight, 10 years down the line. I was like, wow, I don't have that sense of regret. And it's because I didn't look at things as a sense of um, a lack of or a void. I looked at certain things as there was a lot of space in our life. And I had an opportunity to fill that space up, uh, perhaps not with the busyness of parenthood, but with uh, my artistic career or with friendships and or with my life with Emily. And so that was a, a kind of wonderful place to eventually get where I said, when we got married, I didn't know. I didn't, you know, I didn't know whether it was going to work or not. And at least on that aspect of it, it was pretty amazing to, to think that, yeah, wow, things did work out well. What about for you, Emily? What, why didn't you start, uh, backpedaling when you realized there were some real differences between you, uh, particularly around child rearing, but, um, well, not child rearing, but whether or not to have children. Um, what kept you in? After I did um, an exploration as best I could into, could I be a parent? Could we adopt? Do I have enough energy to raise a parent? respecting so much how important it was for Alex made it important to me to at least poke around and see how I might react when thinking about different options of how we could include this in our life together. Um, and it just became abundantly clear that that was not something that I could handle, you know, just physically, um, logistically, realistically. Um, you know, just spending all my time and energy taking myself where I need to go and do what I need to do in a day. Um, so it became something where it really fell on Alex um, just to come to terms with what he was experiencing. And ultimately, the way it would go would be based on whether he 
would say, you know what, I just, I can't ignore what I desire in my life and I need to part ways, or I'm actually okay with shifting gears and not having children. Um, that the decision was somewhat made for me after I looked around, you know, at different options. It was just so clear that it wasn't an option for me. Uh, so in a sense, it was a little easier. Well, not a little, a lot easier um, because I couldn't change my mind about it. It was really a physical issue. Hmm. Um, and Alex had to grapple with that on, on, on an emotional level. You both live in Vermont now, but you came here. Were you kind of a pandemic couple who escaped the city when COVID hit? Yes and yes. So uh, you're in Bristol, Vermont? Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, the Brooklyn to Bristol train, I forget what letter or number that is, but... It's the Bronx to Bristol. Bronx to Bristol. Bronx to <laughs> Bristol. So I, I don't think it has a lot of passengers on it. Uh, how did that end up being the train that you took? Well, Emily's uh, folks, both of our folks actually had uh, were uh, suburban uh, New Yorkers who retired to the Champlain Valley. Emily's folks came up here in the late 90s. And then uh, my folks came over to uh, Cornwall about a dozen years ago. So we had people in the area. And once the pandemic hit, we thought to, you know, get out of Dodge pretty quickly. Uh, this was in April of, you know, early, early in the pandemic. And, and we had always liked it a lot up here. And, you know, pretty soon we thought, you know, let's think of leaving the city. Emily's wanted to, to leave Gotham for years and we thought maybe upstate New York, but then we thought, no, we, we, we know Vermont better. We know the Champlain Valley uh, more. And Emily had long adored Bristol. I had never been here before. Uh, and uh, I mean, we, we couldn't be more thrilled with just our experiences being in Vermont, in, in our town in particular, but in Vermont in general, just the, hospitality and the openness of, of people around us so many smart interesting creative people so many down-to-earth people uh, i mean we feel like we've been really you know welcomed here in ways that have been sort of beyond our, really beyond our imagination two years ago if you would have told us this is where we'd be at we, w we wouldn't have believed you hmm. can you talk about the work that you both do um for a living Sure. So I had worked in an emergency department for over 20 years and would still be there today, I'm sure, had the pandemic not hit. Um, having chronic illness and working in that environment was not an issue. You know, with all the bugs and viruses and things that come through that people bring in, that was never a threat for me. Um, but the pandemic definitely changed that. And what I was doing in conjunction while I was working in the ER was, um, and for many years, um, stemming from having chronic illness and wanting to find a more peaceful way of living, a more accepting way of living. Um, I have developed a very deep spiritual life for myself and I've been studying energy healing um, and based on an experience that I had with anxiety when I graduated from college many years ago, I put all of that together and created a coaching and energy healing business that is specialized for people that are experiencing anxiety, hmm. whether it be, you know, brief 
an acute situation, more extended, more chronic. Um, and working, you know, it's, I, I like to differentiate between therapy and coaching to say that therapy is more of a deep dive into old past issues, traumas, and working through deep feelings. And with my work, we just take where a client is today with their anxiety and move forward with tools and techniques to work with the mind and our amazing imaginations that can take off. And then also caring for the body and the energy field with um, Reiki and breath work and crystal energy, com one complementing the other, balancing the mind and balancing the body at the same time. And I do that through uh, Zoom, actually, all distance healing and coaching hmm. through Zoom. Um, so that's worked out really perfectly. Hmm. Alex, uh, talk, talk about your work. Yeah, I work as an editor uh, for Esquire magazine. Uh, primarily, I run Esquire Classic, which is the magazine's digital archive. And uh, beyond that, I actually run a site called The Stacks Reader, which is dedicated to preserving great long-form magazine writing, mostly from the pre-digital era. Uh, but I started as a, I worked in the film business and, and movie post-production in my 20s and got to work for Ken Burns and the Coen brothers and, you know, have some really great experiences in movies. And then in my 30s, I started uh, one of the first uh, Yankee blogs, uh, no disrespect to the shirt that you're wearing now, which is a Red Sox shirt, David. Um, and and uh, I, I got into <laughs> And I got into sports writing. And after a couple of years, this is in the early aughts, I thought that the writers, uh, the sports writers and the journalists were more interesting than the athletes. And so uh, pretty quickly, I, I sort of tacked from writing about sports to really just researching these great uh, magazine writers from mostly the 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, of course, towering figures like Joan Didion and 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 uh, Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese and, and, and folks like that. But then the scores of um, great uh writers, uh, illustrators, photographers that work in an ephemeral media like magazines who done, have done terrific work over the years, but you know, five, 10, 20 years later, their work isn't really, really remembered. So for me, being able to work as a kind of preservationist and an archivist to keep alive some of the great storytelling that has been found in uh, American popular magazines has been incredibly, incredibly satisfying. Hmm. Um well, I want to turn back to uh, the two of you. Um, you, of course, uh, as, after you got married, Emily, you began exhibiting symptoms, chronic migraines, and were ultimately diagnosed with this convergence insufficiency. Um, explain what that is, Emily. Essentially, it's a spatial management problem. Um, and when say for example when i read it's very hard to track um the line you know i'll come to the end of a line and i'll come back to read the next line and i'm up a line too far down a line too far rereading the same line um also for example when i'm out in nature or um say at a party i'm always like looking for a you know a tree to lean on a picnic table or holding a napkin or a glass in my hand to um, just kind of orient myself in space. And I know that description may sound like 
I fall over all the time, but it actually doesn't look like that. It, it sounds like vertigo the way you're describing it. Thankfully, I don't have vertigo. Um, I, I'm not really sure how else to describe that. It's just hard for me to ask my visual system to focus on any small thing for an extended period of time and to always have a little something to orient myself in space, holding something. But that makes looking at a computer screen difficult, make looking at a phone difficult. Try living your life without having to send emails or look at your phone every day. I mean, seriously, try it. I mean, it's pretty challenging. Uh, never mind television, never mind looking at the windows of certain modern cars where they have anti-shatter, anti-glare materials in it that makes it difficult. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's pretty debilitating. So one of the things, Alex, that you um, talk about and write about in, in this book is the role, uh, uh, your role as a man, as a caregiver. And, you know, we, in a perhaps sexist way, but perhaps... Um, it reflects reality. We often think of women, you know, who are essentially the default caregivers when a loved one falls ill. What has it been like for you, Alex? What have you had to change about how you do things and who you are to be a male caregiver? Well, that's a good point. I mean, listen, one thing is, is I grew up in a, in a liberal um, household, um, uh, and I'm a Gen Xer, so I grew up under the second wave of feminism, you know, even male figures like Robert, I mean, Alan Alda or Donahue, you know, these were guys that were in the cultural firmament in the 70s and 80s, sort of leading the way to, you know, sort of feel more comfortable being sensitive. And obviously that was a generation, two generations older than I was, but I grew up under the influence of that stuff with somebody who went to therapy from a young age as a guy, you know, where... It's not the norm necessarily, you know, often for men, it's usually a crisis that brings you into therapy. Maybe that could be for women too. I don't mean to be, to spe specify it for gender, but um, th there were certain, uh, I guess you want to say maybe more feminine qualities, if you want to assign it a uh, gender that I was a little bit more comfortable with than some men, um, just because of my upbringing. But there were plenty of things that are traditional guy ways of operating that I was really challenged with, essentially like listening to my wife have an issue and wanting to fix it instead of listen to her, you know, and not even listen to her already. Like my mo motor is turning and, and solutions and how can, and sometimes to understand when that could be useful and other times when that could be nothing but counterproductive. Hmm. And that was, you know, really, as, as a matter of fact, we were just talking the other day, uh, Emily and I had a conversation with our great friend Liz who introduced us and I was listening to the two of them talk and I still was get I was like taking notes hearing how women can talk to each other and acknowledge each other in ways that are so foreign to me you know to approach but when I hear it and I see then that how Emily responded to our friend Liz I said this is amazing you know so just <laughs> So just being open to not having having to have all the answers, to uh, being comfortable with your with helplessness, which is a real which is a real uh, it's a real task. You know, the Buddhists say you know being comfortable being uncomfortable, but that's really essentially what it is. Learning talk, how to talk, sit with the discomfort and, and talk about that a little because you you do raise that as a as a big issue for you you know one time punching the wall your sense of helplessness about um 
that you couldn't, can't do anything about Emily's health issues. What do you do when you watch somebody sitting there in front of you, whether it's your spouse, your child, your friend, your parent, your loved one, and they are, there's nothing that you can do to quote fix them. You know, it's, that's, a, that's a sophisticated thing to have to sit through because you have these waves of emotion. Sometimes the waves of emotion just came to me as irritation to an extreme where I would want to like physically throw something, you know. Um, but eventually I came to sort of recognize that those feelings were help, feel, help feeling helpless, feeling really helpless. And sometimes the only way to make it through that for me was just to breathe through it and sit. I mean, sometimes it would be, hey, I got to put on a headphones and listen to something or check out or go take a walk or something. But one of the things and why Emily is such an amazing partner is not because things are necessarily easy, but because what do you call it? Sit and when you oh, dig and sit, dig and sit. You know, it, it's, it's, it's the same thing that some of the Buddhists say about just stay, you know, which is the most painful thing that we could probably do. Right. Emily, what does dig and sit mean? Um, like dealing with your feelings and digging within yourself and trying to come to a place where you feel comfortable with whatever is at hand um, and just sitting with that feeling um, until you're able to move through it, you know, exploring it within yourself, um, you know, digging into yourself and then just sitting with it. Um, and just as an opposite perspective to Alex's experience, you know, yes, I'm the one that has the illness stuff, but it's not off my radar what he's experiencing. And I've been saying since my early 20s when I developed the Crohn's, thank God I am the person in my family that has this. I could never be the sister or the parent or I, I couldn't watch this. And in a lot of ways, I think that Alex's situation is a lot more difficult. Um, and also he has the choice to stay or leave. You know, I, I'm boxed in to the experience. Um, so he's really navigating in a way that he doesn't have to. Um, and you know, going through these difficult scenarios and situations that come up fairly regularly and having to process his own experience with it and not, and not having to um, is tremendous um, from my perspective. I, I see that as incredibly difficult and challenging. Dave, one thing just to throw in there too, and I think Emily and I both talk about this sometimes, because sometimes Emily's like, how can I accept this? You know, how can I, when she's feeling not well, how do you accept this? And someone recently told me that acceptance doesn't have to mean liking it, <laughs> you know, not being happy about something. But that's the, I often the thing that I struggle with the most is just to try to accept what it, what is. Alex, what is your advice if another friend comes to you in this situation with a loved one with a chronic illness, what do you share with them about how to deal with this and how to be a good partner? I guess for me, a lot of it would be working on, on, on being compassionate to myself um, because a, a lot of these things, you can get, 
you know, Emily's talking about being on my side of it and, oh, I want to be the perfect caregiver. I want to be so selfless. I don't want to have an emotion or a feeling myself. It's got to be like out of a movie, right? You know, so that you have to sort of acknowledge that you're having all sorts of different reactions to something, which may not look attractive to somebody to have feelings about something when you're trying to do something selfless, but to sort of be honest with yourself and also super, super compassionate with yourself as you go through these things. You can only be as conscious as you are in that moment. You know, sometimes it's easy, even doing this process project, oh, we're looking back at ourselves 15, 20 years ago, and it's tempting sometimes to be like, you know, God, you could have done it this way. Why didn't you? No, but you know, we were as conscious as we could be at any given moment. And so for me, trying to have compassion, and I'm saying this almost to myself as much as I would say this to anyone else, because that is something that I struggle with, is having compassion, not pity, not feeling sorry for myself, but compassion. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Emily, what is your advice to others who face this situation from the perspective that you have in this relationship? Meaning if I was speaking with someone else who has a chronic condition and yeah. is in a relationship? Yeah. Um, what would I say? Um, I would say I'm sorry and um, just be very acknowledging of what they're experiencing. I feel that just being a witness to someone's experience is really powerful uh, without having to strategize or figure things out or the whys or the hows or, or the what am I going to do kind of thing. Um, but just honoring where they are and what their current experience is. Um, and I, I honestly would say the same thing that Alex is describing, you know, having a lot of self-compassion. Um, and it's something that I struggle with regularly. Um, I attach quite unfortunate <laughs> um, thinking to my situation, you know, when I'm really down and out and I start to get into a dark place and exasperated with either not being able to do X, Y, or Z, or being in such a state of pain and discomfort, um, I go to places of, well, if I was stronger, I could figure this out, or I could just somehow, if I was reading the right material or researching in the right area or doing it correctly, I'd be able to strategize my way out of this. Uh, just insanity, really. Um, <laughs> and then just sharing with that other person um, to be kind to oneself. You described earlier how you both recorded this independently of one another. So to some extent, the finished product was a surprise to each of you, how the other person told their story. Um, Emily, was there anything that surprised you about that Alex said in recounting your life uh, as a couple to the world? Yes, and that um, when he was having cold feet around getting further involved with me a few months into our relationship, I didn't realize that he was exploring like multiple facets of his life. Um, not just does he want to be in a relationship with someone who has chronic illness, um, but 
you know, his career situation or his financial situation, I wasn't aware that um, those were the big topics. I really thought it was more about, you know, did he want to get involved with someone that has chronic illness? And um, it was very eye-opening to me and it just made me feel so admirable toward Alex for grappling with that stuff and dealing with other things going on in his life that um, that really mattered as to whether he was going to continue in this relationship or not. Hmm. Um, and Alex, I mean, let me let me ask you the same question. Anything that surprised you about Emily's telling of your shared story? No, nothing, nothing surprised me, you know, nothing surprised me. I was just blown away, you know, but blown away in a way that I expected her to be that good. No offense. You know, I mean, like I, I knew she would be able, once she decided to commit to something, once she, she committed to this and to being like, go for the jugular, I, I, I just knew that she would, she would be tremendous and eloquent and uh, winning, which is exactly how she turned out to be. Um, and even talking about super difficult things like anxiety or um, some of the illness stuff, I knew she would. I knew she would be amazing talking about it. So I actually, I was sitting there listening, and I was just, of course, uber critical of everything I said, and I just basked in everything that my wife said. I, I think she's the best. Alex, what do you hope people come away from this book um, thinking, knowing, understanding? I would just like people to have a feeling, to, to have an emotional response to it, because we tried to write, we tried to make a, uh, an audio book here that is intimate, uh, almost as if you were eavesdropping in on somebody's therapeutic session. You know, there's a real pointed intimacy to it. But I have to say, David, there is a lot that we did not talk about. There was a lot of details about our life that we did not talk about. And so while we are obviously putting our vulnerability out there in a very candid way, there's so much that we chose not to discuss. And we, so for uh, hopefully a listener can see a little something of themselves in our story, um, even if the particulars are completely different and that there's something in there that they can feel and identify with. That would be my greatest goal. Well, of course I have to ask you, what did you not put in there that you <laughs> did you not talk about? I mean, you're... That's the sequel, dude. That's the sequel. Come on. Well, this is where you tee it up. We, you know, yeah. the second season. I mean, when Netflix exactly. runs this as a as a series. That's right. Um, well, Emily, let me ask you um, the same thing. What do you hope people come away from this book uh, knowing or understanding? I think that my greatest intention is someone listening and feeling a little bit better in their own skin, having heard or learned about um, what other people go through. You know, a lot of this stuff isn't talked about so readily. And um, if someone else can feel a little bit better about themselves identifying with these universal themes, that's potent for me. What was the hardest thing for you to talk about openly, Emily? Um, the ostomy. Yeah, definitely the ostomy, which has evolved from a scarlet letter to um, this is who I am. 
And this is the ostomy bag that you wear yes. on your hip. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's that was amazing. your that was your biggest secret. Big secret. Big secret. Oh my god. <laughs> Big secret. Mm -hmm. Alex, what was the hardest thing for you to be open about in this book? Probably being candid about having difficulties in uh, differentiating what between intimacy and sex and uh, knowing, sort of exploring my uh, relationship with sex and, um, and, and trying to be frank and vulnerable about that. Yeah, that was definitely, uh, that was risky. And, but I'll tell you something, I'm with a partner here who's talking about ostomy bag. You know, <laughs> it, 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 what, what, I had to bring something to the table. Just in, you know, that's the only equitable way to have done this project is for both of us to do something. It wasn't about me being this quiet guy in the background. No, this is a story about both of us and what we both bring to the table in this in the scenario. So, and I listen, I've been working at Esquire magazine for a while now, and they have a tradition of great storytelling in which, you know, writers risk something of themselves to try to achieve a story and so i felt very honor bound to that tradition not to not to tell details of our life to be self-aggrandizing or puff ourselves up but in the service of telling a story that would be impactful well alex belt and emily shapiro i want to thank both of you for joining us on the vermont conversation thank you so much david thank you really appreciate it That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>